Hello there, and welcome to the Workplace Communication Podcast, a podcast dedicated to leaders who want to elevate team performance by refining leadership communication skills. And now, let's dive right in with your host, Lindsay LaPaquette. Welcome back again, everyone, to another episode of the Workplace Communication Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay LaPaquette. Today, we're talking with Robbie Samuels about the one thing you need to build a successful business. When a decade of building a reputation as a networking expert became irrelevant overnight, as in-person events disappeared, Robbie Samuels swiftly shifted his focus to virtual events, building a thriving six-figure business based on all new revenue streams. So today we're going to talk a bit about what that shift from in-person networking expertise to the pandemic was like, where Robbie has taken his career and some of the communication lessons that he's learned that we can all apply to our businesses to make them more successful. So Robbie, uh, thanks for joining me here today. Thanks for inviting me, Lindsay. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's go back to that moment when the world shut down. Feels like yesterday, even though it was, gosh, maybe two and a half years ago now. And in-person networking stopped. Your first book was all about in-person networking and that was your expertise. And suddenly it was done. So what was that time like for you? Yeah, March 9th, 2020 was when I accepted that this was happening. I'd been hearing about it through um, various means for probably a couple months. Um, but that was the day I was like, okay, stop putting your head in the sand. Like this is actually a thing. And I think that was helpful to come to that acceptance quickly. And I felt really stuck because as you mentioned in the intro, I had spent over a decade teaching people how to network at conferences. I had this talk that I had done um, for over 10 years. I had written a book on the topic. I had done a TEDx talk on the topic. I had a podcast for years at that point on the topic, group coaching programs, but nobody needed to know March 2020, eye contact, business cards, shaking hands, or body language. (laughs) Like they just didn't. So my business basically didn't exist. And March 11th, 2020, I was meeting with a a peer accountability group, a peer mastermind, which is one of the takeaways from this conversation is how helpful to have that. And they kicked me in the butt and they said, (laughs) you don't think of networking as a thing that only happens in person. You've built a global network in the last five years go tell people how to do that. And so I wrote and released the next day, nine ways to network in a pandemic. Thursday night, March 12th, 2020, I'm looking at that list and I'm thinking I should do one of these. (laughs) Host a virtual happy hour. And I love hosting dinners when I go to conferences. I host a, a monthly dinner, which of course it stopped for years. I'd been doing that four or five years. So I posted in a private community on Facebook, hey, if I host a virtual happy hour tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern, would you come? And I got a bunch of yeses because I'd already built up a lot of reputation and relationships in that space. So that was it. If you want to know why I've been hosting a free virtual happy hour on Fridays at 5 o'clock Eastern, it's because I got the idea around 8 o'clock Thursday night (laughs) and it took off. I hosted it Friday the 13th, March 13, 2020. (laughs) And turns out I had some skills that I had not appreciated. I had some skills around online facilitation that I had acquired because as an entrepreneur, I'd been using Zoom for group calls and for masterminds and for trainings, presentations. So I understood a little bit more than I'd realized. What I didn't know 
is anything about Zoom beyond how you just get on a call? <laughs> and I never looked at the settings. I'd never looked in the hood. So my surprise, as everyone else's surprise, the next week I realized I had access to breakout rooms because I thought it was a paid feature. I thought it was only some people had it. We all had it. We just didn't know it. So March 20th, 2020, I opened virtual uh, breakout rooms for the first time. April 14th, uh, I announced and very quickly filled 15 people in a $500 four-week training on how to become more confident and competent using Zoom. And that program ran four months in a row and constantly being filled with no breaks. And by the third month became a certification program. And it was split between speakers who were trying to retool their business from all in person to now online and people who were trying to take their skills as meeting professionals or sometimes virtual assistants or executive assistants and uh, learn how to better support speakers. And some of those latter group became certified virtual event professionals through me. And I then went on to hire them as subcontractors when I got hired to support organizations in bringing their events online with less stress and greater participant engagement. So eight months into the pandemic, I had this thriving six-figure company, multiple new revenue streams. Um, it was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, so listening to you, I was thinking, huh. So you said March 14th was the date you launched that. I was in uh, Arizona. Yeah. Oh, sorry. April. Okay. Then maybe I don't feel quite as badly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard March in my brain. So I was in uh, Arizona, actually. I had attended a training, I think March, I don't know, 6th to 8th or something like that. And then we headed on vacation. And for me, the date was March 13th because I remember we were at the Grand Canyon and realized, oh my gosh, we have to go home. Like our vacation yeah. is done. And yeah. then came home with a cough, which of course back then was more alarming than it is today and uh, sat in isolation for, I think, with my son for a week. And so I didn't even have business. I was just watching it all fall apart, thinking I'll deal with that when we're all feeling better. <laughs> Did not have COVID. And here you were launching a new business through all that. So that's pretty impressive that you were able to so quickly, you know, the word everyone hates now, pivot. I use the term reinvention for that reason. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> reinvent. That's also getting like a similar... Uh, Feeling that <laughs> we, we need some new synonyms. And so then that led you to your new book, Small List, Big Results, Launch a Successful Offer No Matter the Size of Your Email List. So was that through your experience of your reinvention that that came to fruition? Yeah, it is. Now, in 2017, I released my first books, uh, Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic Effective <laughs> Networking at Conferences. And a quick aside, bagels are those tight clusters that you experience when you're at a networking event and you can't figure out how to break into these shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder huddles. But if one person shifts their body language to make space, now it's a croissant. And so you both want to look for the croissant and be the croissant when going to these in-person events. So I launched that book without a clear plan for what came next. And I stumbled my way through launching an online uh, coaching program. And in 2018, I started working on a book based on what I had learned, what my clients were learning as I was coaching them through these experiences. I wrote almost 20,000 words and then I put it aside because I didn't have in that moment a clear plan for what came next. And I wasn't going to have that happen a second time. Three years later, I realized my success in going from basically no business to a thriving one was that I treated myself like a coaching client. At the time that this was all happening, I was actually coaching on behalf of a company, a dozen entrepreneurs a week. So 
I was helping them through the crisis. And I realized at some point that all the inbound inquiries I was receiving. So basically, March 13th to April 14th, I got dozens of inbound emails asking for help because suddenly I was a Zoom expert because I knew a little bit more than everybody else. (laughs) But I could have easily, my extroverted brain would have been happy just to talk to people that I wasn't in charge of feeding. But my coach brain made me realize that I would never tell a client to do that. And I turned those calls into research calls. And it's those research calls that led me to very quickly assess that there was an immediate need in the market and to announce the pilot of a four-week training program that was going to be experiential. And that's what people signed up for April 14th. I built it as we were in it and people got a lot out of it. So I did it a second month and the third month it became a certification program with additional modules and all live. I had nothing on my website about this until the third month, but the 40 people who went through those four months, they didn't buy it because it was on my website. They were all people on my network. So my (laughs) second book is really explaining how do you validate an idea? How do you discover likely prospects from your existing network who already know, like, and trust you? And then find out what they need, what they think they need, (laughs) what solutions they're willing to pay for, And then package that with them and test it, do a pilot or a beta test. And so the second book, I took out the 20,000 words, brushed them off and added three years of coaching stories and a lot more detail because I had realized in those three years that you can't just say, "Uh, look at your LinkedIn context. You'll find some great ideas. (laughs) You do that all the time, all right? Very clear step-by-step process on how to wake up your network. And I then pulled those particular sections out and turned them to workbooks. And I have this free toolkit that goes with the book to help people really just make the most of all the strategies. There's a training video included. There is, you know, how, what do you do with all this problem language you've discovered? Um, and because of my technical expertise, I'm also able to share, you know, how do you turn on the free transcriptions and caption service on Zoom? So you immediately get the transcription. You don't have to download it and upload it and pay for it. And just little things like that, that I can, can add value in that way. Now, I just happened to, uh, this morning and last night, went to a networking event where two different people, without prompting, gave a testimonial. Two people I didn't know had read my book, used it in the last few months, and it's helped their business so much that they realized that I was in the room and they did a commercial for me. Two mm, days in a row. Awesome. Very cool as a content creator to hear that. So I know this book is adding a lot of value and there are ways in which these concepts are not related just to business. I've been doing something like this since college, maybe even earlier, but I remember in college trying to get people on board with things because I was organizing uh, a group and I needed people to be on the same page. I needed to figure out what their why was and how would they plug in to the message that we were doing. And a lot of what I'm teaching now, which has a focus on revenue, can also be employed to just get your message out there, to get buy-in, to change hearts and minds. So I think relevant in a bigger sphere than just the world of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's ways in which, um, you know, there can be direct impact on revenue generation. And then there's a more indirect impact when I think in terms of just, you know, the way somebody is leading their team that isn't, I mean, necessarily directly tied to revenue generation, but undoubtedly it has impact. So I think a lot of the things in your book, probably like you say, apply very largely to uh, just human interactions in general. And I think that's shown by the fact that you've been able to 
take your core message and expertise and apply it in a bunch of different ways, as many people have had to do through the pandemic. Um, so uh, I guess to get back to this whole piece about the one thing that you need to build a successful business, what would you say that thing is? Uh, reoccurring revenue that you can anticipate. <laughs> mm. um, you know, like to have a business at all, you need to sell something. To have a successful business, you need to have a sense of where that money is coming from on an ongoing yeah. basis. And I think too often when we get excited about a new offer, service, product, solution, whatever you want to call it, um, we just jump right into like, let's create this mode. And I get the intention, like we're experts, we know something, we want to be helpful. And what we're missing in all of this is input from the very people we're trying to help. Mm. And the people we're trying to help are, they have like different levels of awareness of the problem than we do. You know, they have the problem they know they have, they're willing to admit. Then there's the problem they know they have, they're not willing to admit. And then there's the problem that you know they have that they have no idea <laughs> about. And unfortunately, that's the solution that we usually build. We usually mm -hmm. build a solution for the big problem when they are only thinking about the small p problems. Mm -hmm. And so it's a disconnect when you finally, months and maybe even years later, emerge and you announce to the market or your team, you know, here's the thing. Everyone's like, what is this? Who are you? I don't need this. You know what? And it's very demoralizing to spend, you know, a year and a half working on something to have that kind of response. But I've seen it time and time again. And the anecdote is to slow down. And so my process can take the first time, it could take 12 weeks. It could take a lot less over time. But if you develop a pattern of doing this on a regular basis, every time you have a great idea, you can in six to 12 weeks, get all the information you need to know whether or not to move forward with it and exactly how to move forward and exactly what language to use in describing what problems you're trying to solve and your marketing message will change. And you'll also get a lot of people rooting for you, even if they're not people who directly need your service because they heard about this from you, they'll be more likely to make referrals and support you. And so when you do finally do the launch in a public way, it's not to an empty room. It's a community of people who are waiting for this. That's true for a book, by the way, or a podcast. You know, like, this is what I mean. Like, it could be yeah. used in so many different uh, reasons for how you yeah. market. Well, and I was going to say, so your audience is entrepreneurs, but I mean, I've seen some big corporations, I won't name any names, but a food chain launched something that was very off brand without any messaging around, you know, moving in that direction. And even my kids who are 10 and 12 were like, what are they doing selling that? They don't sell that kind of food. And I thought, I like that you can pick up on that. And then within X amount of time, that food was gone off their menu. And so, I mean, it happens, yes, absolutely at their entrepreneur level, but it happens. I mean, we see that in IT, we see it really everywhere, I think, to different extents. And perhaps, you know, you spoke earlier about um, validating the idea and doing research, and perhaps it's dependent to an extent on how much that's done. So can you walk me through some of these steps uh, in your book that you're recommending? Because I do think they're going to be relevant to a lot of different audiences. Here. Absolutely. And I should also mention that the resources I mentioned earlier, the Big Results Toolkit, is actually available to your listeners at robbysamuels.com forward slash Lindsay. So if they go there, they're going to get a whole zip folder uh, of workbooks and worksheets, training video. 
The one I'm going to call your attention to is the Wake Up Your Network workbook, which mm. again, takes sections of the book and really walks you through this process. And for most people in business, there's a LinkedIn list that you have, but it could be your phone contacts, which by the way, they've been imported from your old device to your new device for years and years and years. Mine, I have some that are 14 years old in my phone. <laughs> Uh, I just cleaned mine up. <laughs> just kind of like keep forwarding ahead. It could be your email list for your business. It could be um, your email address book for your Gmail, whatever it is, whatever resource you use for this. But let's say it's your LinkedIn. I have a process where you download this list and then there you add some columns to the spreadsheet. The first column is the consider column. And the two questions you need to answer in order to put an X in this column is, would they remember my name? <laughs> would I be happy to hear from them out of the blue? Ooh, I like so would that. They, would they remember my name and would I be happy to hear from them out of the blue? If yeah. the answer is yes to both questions, put them in the consider column by putting an X. I like those. The next three columns are their connection to you, their influence in the world, and their interest in your topic. And you want to rank these kind of quickly. Like this is not about doing a lot of research. It's just sort of a gut sense you're ranking them one, two, or three, no half points, no zeros, three. <laughs> two and point three, three, six, yeah, nine. We're not doing that. <laughs> so three is someone knows you really well. That's a three, right? A one is I would have to make a bit of an effort to get their attention, right? Yeah. That they might remember my name, but I'm not super memorable or they're really busy. We're kind of hard to connect with them. The connection part makes a little bit of sense, but the influence part, it's not again, like a research project, but the question is, if they get excited about your idea, how many people, how many of the right people could they tell? So my mother could get yeah. really excited and tell a very specific person, like her friend's daughter might be a perfect fit for you, but my mom doesn't have a platform of following, you know, she doesn't have a podcast, right, doesn't an audience. But there are other people like yourself that do. And so that influence, now the context is interesting, if I were doing something hyper-local, then the immediate past president of the local chamber would have a lot of influence. But if I was doing something national and I saw that same name, it's debatable mm -hmm. how much influence that person is, has on a national stage. So these numbers will change a little bit every time you have an idea because their influence might shift a little depending on the idea. And the last column is their interest in your topic generally. And you have to look at it might be related to the industry they're in, the job title they have, um, what they post about, you know, mm -hmm. their life that you know. Just how much into this would they be, one, two, or three? If they rank a four or fewer when you add those numbers up, then don't have a conversation with them right now. Like go back to the consider column and change the X to a Z so you can actually uh, really, you can f flip the list so that your Zs all end up at the bottom, right? You filter them. Um, or you do it in alpha order so that you don't have to see those folks for now. Don't delete them because they mm -hmm. still remember your name and you'd be happy to hear from them. And what's left, you've got to decide. Some of these people are going to be likely prospects based on the fact that they're super excited about your idea. Some are going to be likely referral partners because they have a, an audience you could maybe reach through them and they're interested in your idea enough <laughs> to listen, to be interested. And then there are people I call coffee chats. And these are the people when you see their name, you just light up. And even though they really aren't <laughs> that relevant to this moment, it just yeah. is nice to think about reaching out to them. And I think having a small number, not too many, of them on your call list each week can inspire you to actually do the outreach. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to overindulge. Yeah. (laughs) You know, two thirds of your list. And I'm saying that maybe you have between 20 and 30 people that you try to reach between uh, in like a 12 week time frame. So if you're trying to find 20 or 30 people, then two thirds of that should be likely prospects. If instead, you can imagine this, if two thirds were likely refer partners and coffee chats, you might have great conversations, but not build the pipeline. So we need to be building a pipeline. Now, if this was more about an idea, not a revenue project, it's the same idea. Like when I was in college and I was Mm -hmm. trying to get people excited about a conference I was planning, I had to figure out how everyone in the group would plug in. What was their motivation? What was their why? What was their thing? And so I basically did research calls, right? I met with each person to figure out like what was the hook for them. And then I helped them connect to the project in a way that felt really meaningful. So when I brought the idea up to the full board and we had an extensive discussion about where we're spending money and time and effort, these other people who had been maybe previously a bit apathetic were suddenly bought in because suddenly a little piece of this pie was theirs and they were really excited about it. So it made my pitch a lot stronger to have a handful of people in the room who were as excited and felt some mutual um, responsibility for the success Mm -hmm. of the project. Yeah. The parallels are so very clear to me because I'm working on a project right now, um, training people in how to influence buy-in to new ideas, new strategy. And I've sort of outlined four categories of, you know, the person is actively resisting the idea. Um, They say they buy in, but their actions don't actually show they buy in. They're not actually doing things that, Mm. you know, they may be saying they're bought in, but are not truly. Right. Um, They're bought in and doing things, but they're, you know, encountering barriers and they can kind of sway either way. And then the people who buy in are committed and looking at how to grow that influence through finding you know, we tend to focus on those who are actively resisting the idea of how do we also harness those who buy it and are committed and get them the tools and skills needed to spread their influence? How do we engage those who are bought in but encountering obstacles and sometimes that gets too big, we let it go? And all the categories you outline, I see the similarity in terms of um, segmenting them for networking, but also segmenting them in terms of when you're trying to get a new idea, a new project going. It's part of change management. You know, it's how do you, like you say, understand the why and then um, grow the influence so that uh, at that meeting, it's not you with this brand new idea that everyone's sort of like, huh, I don't know about that. And all you have is concerns in the room. So there's huge applicability, I think to your approach across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, the steps in the book that I've outlined, I mean, I really do a lot of handholding. I talk about, again, like how do you turn on the transcription so you have the transcript details right there. Then I walk you through how to identify problem language from within that, meaning like what is the language that person is saying to let you know that, like what are they struggling with right now? What is holding them back from the success they're hoping for? And often we come into these conversations with preconceived notions of what that would sound like. And in my book, I talk about the difference between um, exhausted and fatigued. So mm-hmm. you might have a program and you might use the term fatigued to describe the women in your program. And then you go and interview women and 12 of them say the word exhausted and none of them say the word fatigued. Right. 
because it's a little more of a clinical term. You know, like if you're using the more clinical term, that's not how people think about it for themselves. And if that's what you're using in your marketing, people don't think you're talking to them because you're not. And it's a simple fix. So sometimes it's that. Then sometimes it's, you got really excited um, masterminds. Again, I'm a huge proponent of the idea of a mastermind, but I know some people who hear about a mastermind and decide that's it, I wanna do that from now on. But then if you were to do research calls, you would discover that the audience you're trying to reach actually needs training. They're not ready to implement. If they're not ready to do implementation, then they don't need accountability. They need training Mm -hmm. and they're not gonna be a good fit even though they're going to say, yeah, 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 that sounds great. When you go and launch it, no one's going to want to pay for it. Yes. So it's not just coming with an idea and asking, what do you think of this idea? Should we get a blue button or a green button? Which is very limiting <laughs> in the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's giving them some context and letting them talk and then truly listening in the moment and researching the text that they give you afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so I have another workbook in the toolkit is how do you analyze that problem language? Because essentially you need to build a thesis for a pilot and then go back and chat with some people who you think are a good fit and have them say, yeah, the pilot structure seems like it makes sense. In particular, the outcome you're saying we can get from this pilot, which is really key. What is the promise of your pilot? And then they go, yeah, yeah, this all sounds great. And you're like, I'm so happy because I would love to have you be part of this experience. I love your feedback. I think you're a great fit. What do you think? And that's your enrollment. And then it's mm-hmm. a question of just how much they're going to pay to participate, you know, or, or, you know, for the experience and give feedback, et cetera. So that, you know, you may get to a point where you realize the pilot's not even worth running. I think you should applaud that moment. I know it sounds like a down moment, but anytime you get to a point quickly that your idea was a dud is You're saving time. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. You just spent, absolutely. you know, maybe three months investigating an idea. But I bet you, if you were open, you will have learned two or three other paths forward. You won't. And it's better than launching that new food that you then end up the brand I'm exactly. talking about. I heard the dollar loss and I can't remember what it is now. But when I heard it, I thought, holy, when my 10 year old kid knew it was off brand. <laughs> right. That's right. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that we sometimes, um, our ego gets really wrapped up in what we're creating and it's harder to make changes after Mm. spending months and years invested in something. It's much easier to let go and shift and modify in the beginning stages. The danger is that we often are by ourselves in the beginning stages and do not input other ideas from other people. We wanna tinker until it's perfect, except that it's not perfect because we didn't include other people in the idea. Mm. Uh, So there's a balancing act. You wanna go to trusted people, and that's why going to people who already have a history with you And what's fascinating is that unintended consequences in a positive way have come from these conversations. I have so many stories of clients who have stumbled upon new opportunities because they reignited their network in this way. Mm -hmm. It's not related to their current project, but some other conversation took off from someone who, again, remember their name. You were happy to hear from out of the blue, but you just hadn't talked in five or 10 years for no real reason. And this gave you a reason to go do that. And that led to some other possibilities. So it's just a really worthwhile exercise for a lot of people. Now, um, there are a lot of layoffs happening right now. The recession is impending with the economy shrinking. But if you were to start doing this now, even before you left your role, this would be a way Mm -hmm. to prep yourself for your next role. 
you would probably be getting offers before you even had to do a job hunt. If you just steadfastly committed time each week, each month to reaching out and connecting and nurturing your network, not because you're selling something, not because you were begging for a job, because you really wanted to support people, you want to see what's going on in their lives. It is a great way to get back on everyone's radar so that if a few months from now, hopefully it doesn't happen, you find yourself needing to ask for help. There are going to be people who have talked to you in the last few months, not 10 years ago. Right. Converse is when I get a, a LinkedIn message or an email, my CV is attached, please help. And it's like, wait, who is this person? Right, and I look, right. I haven't talked to them in 15 years. You know, it's like, whoa, they're desperate. You know, that's, that doesn't feel good to me and it's yeah. not going to be effective for them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and even what you're saying here, because um, I, I completely agree with you that now's the time to do it more than when you've been laid off, but it's even effective within your role in an organization, right? Building relationships outside of your department, it helps you understand the flow of your role to everyone else's and then it gives you perspective on things that you might not see when you're making decisions or advocating for decisions. And so I think even internally that idea of waking up, you know, your professional network in the office. Uh, I mean, A, I think it gives you connections if you were to lose your job, but B, I think it makes you much more effective at your job. And in fact, we had someone on recently, goodness, who was it? Mark Reifenrath, I think, if I'm not mistaken, who um, on the podcast, who was talking about how as people are hired into his company, there is an expectation that you have you know, lunch or coffee with your colleagues to get to know them, whether they're, you know, in your department or elsewhere. So uh, I think, again, your messages are really applicable on a large scale here. I also think, you know, so my wife is uh, in a company in ed tech, and she is the global chair of an employee resource group. And so she's got a lot of dotted lines because of that, which is a great way to get to know people. Um, and there's been all kinds of shifts happening in her company, reorgs and such. And what you start realizing is the more you understand how decisions that you're making in your role impact other people. I mean, my personal experience would be I was in fundraising and development in a nonprofit and I had to understand what the program people were doing, right? And vice versa for us to really get a good product out there. And that sometimes we're kind of myopic <laughs> in our work mm -hmm. and we assume other people have certain knowledge or context and we don't have their knowledge and context. And so, you know, you make what you think is a, you know, common sense change to something mm -hmm. and it has this like horrible ripple effect. Yeah. <laughs> and so the more we sort of vet ideas and then if we make missteps in the future, people at least see us as the kind of people who are open to hearing the feedback. And so things can be corrected sooner rather than later. Uh, egos get put aside so that we can actually make this work for everybody. I'm constantly trying to figure out like what do other people need from me to be successful in their role? And that's true for the team that I run now as an entrepreneur, but I'm also always seeing that even with my friends and colleagues because the referral network is not one way. And so yes. the more I can support everyone else uh, is a way for me to sort of be getting what I need when I need it without mm -hmm. even me knowing it sometimes. Yeah. It's a shift of perspective, I think, from what you said there, you know, just looking at what am I going to get out of it to a partnership and creating a mutually beneficial relationship. And I'm working on something where I was, uh, I reached out to somebody that I was interested in subcontracting to, and I shared, it was a new thing we were doing. And, and I, you know, was trying to figure out what terms would be 
fair to both parties. And so I'd called her up and said, can I go over this and can I get your feedback? Can you tell me? Um, I tried to think it through from her perspective, but wanted her feedback. And when I went through, she said to me, you know, often when people approach me for things like this, I can tell it's how can I make the most money off of your back? But what you're outlining here sounds like a really fair, uh, you know, beneficial agreement to both of us. Let me think it over. But I was happy because that's what I was aiming for was how do we make this valuable and worthwhile to both of us and not how do I just make the most I can off of your back and make you resentful and then not want to work with me anymore. I mean, um, this could be applied just to any employer employee relationship. You know, yeah. I was just listening uh, to oh, I have to think of what the book is called. Oh, uh, Giftology by John Rulin. And he's this great anecdote about how he wants his employees to provide world-class service, you know, and he has this high, high expectation. And then he realized that a lot of his employees have never actually experienced world-class ah. service. So he paid for them to have a couple of nights at the Ritz cool, and asked them to sort of pay attention to what made the difference in what they were experiencing and that it's those little touches that add up to world-class service. And, you know, to me, it's like, you can't just assume everyone's got the knowledge that you have about what you mean, but how do right. you give them the opportunities to experience it? And so I, I think that it's just, um, it's a learning experience. And I think it's hard when we think we're done learning. I think mm. if you ever think you're done learning about something, you're probably really missing the boat. Your blind spot's pretty big at that point. If you remain open and curious, I think that's the best thing we can do. And look, really seek out the feedback from others that we're, if our work might have any impact on them, whether we're trying to sell to them or collaborate with them or hire them or oversee their work, et cetera. If we're all trying to get to some end result together, being open and curious is a really valuable uh, way to approach it. Yeah. I think one of the takeaways here for the listeners is noticing those moments, right? When you're not wanting to learn, when you're not wanting to hear what someone else has to say. I think we all have them as open-minded as we may consider ourselves to be. But notice those moments and ask yourself why, right? Turn inwards and look at what are the factors that are making me closed off to hearing these ideas. Doesn't mean you have to adopt them, but how do I get myself back to a space where I can open-mindedly engage in them? And then make a decision that works. Cause I agree with you that it's that moment when we're done learning when uh, <laughs> all goes south. Um, listen, Robbie, one thing I want to say is I really, really, really love how your book has such hands-on practical advice and steps. Like even when you were talking about how to segment your list, I guess, for lack of a better word, to, I guess your network and the criteria on which to do it, it's all really concrete and hands-on and applicable. Um, and that you have worksheets integrated, I think it's, you know, much more um, likely to impact results than when, you know, I listen to an audio book as I'm driving and think, oh, those are all great things to do. And by the time I get home, I've forgotten half the things that I've heard, of course. So where can people find your book? Uh, thank you. And the book actually has over 200 reviews. It was released in October of 2021. It surpassed 200 reviews recently. And um a common word in the reviews is the word practical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it comes up a lot. It is a good word. Um, it's really, I wanted people to be able to DIY, do it yourself if that's who you are. And I'm available for people who need the additional help. My ideal client uh, would look at all of that and say, I want to get this right. I don't want to do this by myself. I don't want to get lost in the process and I want to be accountable and get it done on time. 
And so those are the folks that I work with at a high level. But the book is available and uh, the toolkit and the book, you go to robbysamuels.com forward slash Lindsay. And that way you can get access to the toolkit before the big results toolkit, even before buying the book, even if you don't buy the book, honestly, you can still get a lot of value out of the toolkit. But the book brings the stories, the strategies all to life. There's a lot more context for it. Um, and then I host a free virtual happy hour every first Friday of the month at nomorebadzoom.com. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's a great way for folks to get better about how they present themselves online, which is a big part of the work that I do, but to network and hear from guest experts. And I also do a long Q&A at the end. So if folks have questions about any of the concepts in either of my books or any of the work that I'm doing, it's just a good space for people to be able to connect with me as well as a great community. So that's at nomorebadzoom.com. Okay. So we will get both of those links into the show notes and I encourage everyone to go grab the toolkit. I'll grab it. It sounds like it's a phenomenal resource and like you said, a practical way to apply the concepts because I think that's often where people get stuck between idea and execution. And then we say people just aren't motivated enough and they're not dedicated enough when actually sometimes it's the how that they need the support on. So I, I encourage you to run on over and grab that. And I just wanted to say thank you, Robbie, for your time and congrats on this shift because that's really neat to hear what success you've had after uh, in-person networking just disappeared overnight. <laughs> thank you so much. I look forward to staying in touch with your listeners. I love being uh, involved with folks on LinkedIn. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so we'll get Robbie's LinkedIn into the show notes also. For the listeners, I hope this episode has left you with a renewed commitment to yourself to knowing who you are and standing tall in your values, while also leaving space for those around you, to choosing growth, courage, and empathy, even in your most difficult leadership moments, to becoming the leader everyone wants to follow. We'll see you back again next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Workplace Communication Podcast with Lindsay LaPaquette. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share and also leave a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. If your organization is looking to invest in elevating team performance by refining leadership communication skills, you can find more information about Lindsay's coaching, speaking, and consulting by visiting lindsaylapaquette.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.